fine. And uh, you can either look at it or it'll come up on the screen if you rather follow it that way. For some of you, this may be your first experience of going to a church. And uh, you've never really been part of a church before, or maybe you've never ever been to a church meeting before. So, you, you know, you will obviously have a whole load of questions about what is a church, what do people do, what's expected, you know, should you all wear Christian jumpers uh, like Andy or whatever. We'll have a whip round for him afterwards. Uh, many of you will have been to other churches before coming here, and uh, you will have certain expectations, certain assumptions of what a church does and doesn't do and what it should be like. And uh, I need to tell you that some of those are accurate of this church, but some of them won't be, because every church is different. And uh, every church has its own characteristics. That doesn't make us better than other churches, it just makes us different. John Wimber, who founded the Vineyard Movement, said that the vineyard is just one vegetable in the stew. We do have a distinctive flavor. It doesn't mean that it's a better flavor. It's just one of many. And we believe that there are certain characteristics that, be, that should be seen in any vineyard church. And so if you decide to be part of this church, here are some of the things that you'll be letting yourselves in for. So what do we want this church to be known for? The first thing is we want this uh, church to be known as a place where the Bible is taught faithfully. And you should have a, a verse coming up there, 2 Timothy 3.16, which says that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the people of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We believe that the Bible is unique. There is no other book like it. And we also believe that it should be taught in a practical way so that we can see how it applies to daily life. We believe that the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, that's the, the two bits that make up the Bible, are the word of God, fully inspired, without errors in the original documents, and are an infallible rule of faith and practice. And so everything that we do as a church, and also individually, every aspect of our lives, should either be directly or indirectly uh, sanctioned by the Bible. In John 5, verse 40, Jesus was talking to some of the religious leaders. And he said to them, You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You see, it's not enough just to read the Bible. I believe that's something that we should all do every day. But it's not enough just to read the Bible. The Bible is there to lead us into a relationship with Jesus. There are many people in Oxford who know their Bibles backwards. They can quote to you from the original Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and will probably know their way around the Bible better than some of us will ever. And yet, it's a complete waste of time for them because it hasn't led them into a personal relationship with Jesus. One of the reasons that the Bible is so important also is because God speaks to us through his word. The more of a reservoir that we build into our lives of God's word, the more he's able to speak to us. And sometimes God will speak to you through a direct quote from the Bible. But very often it won't be, and yet it's the reservoir of God's word that he's using to speak to you. When God called me to work full-time in the church, 
Uh, it actually came one evening through my employer. And, uh, and then the next evening, um, my mother was reading her Bible and uh, she read a little verse where Saul sends a message to David's father and the, the verse was, send me your son David who's with the sheep. And I was working on a farm at the time. Um, I, I loved sheep, still got a few. And, uh, but my mother felt God speaking to her through that verse, confirming that she had to release me to work full-time in the church. So God speaks to us in all sorts of ways, but it, it is always rooted in his word within us. We haven't got time to talk any more about this this morning, but there is a tape that's available at the back called Receiving God's Word from the 17th of March. So if you missed that, do go and get that. You'll find it very helpful. So we, we need the Bible. We also need to have worship as a way of life. That's the second thing. We want worship to be uh, not just about the songs that we sing. We want worship to be the way our hearts respond. It's about the way our hearts respond to God. It's about the way that affects every single aspect of our lives. And so worship is just as much about the way we respond to that driver who cuts us up in traffic as it is to the way we sing our songs and uh, the way we meet together. Worship is about relationship with God that overflows into every aspect of our lives. Every thought, every assumption, every belief, every ambition, every action is an expression of worship. In 1 Peter 2 verse 9 it says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's true for anybody who's a Christian. Anybody who has chosen to come to Jesus and uh, receive the new life and forgiveness that he has on offer that we have been brought into God's family. We're his people now. But it says there that the purpose of us being God's people is that we should praise him, that we should worship him. It's a life of worship. We have, uh, we've been saved from eternal death, from darkness, and saved for eternal life. And uh, so worship is about everything that we do. And then when we come together, worship overflows according to what's been going on in our lives. And uh, so when we meet together to sing together, we desire worship that is led by the Holy Spirit in a way that is intimate, dynamic, life-changing, and relevant to our culture. Our style is deliberately young, but we want people of every age to feel welcomed here. Again, we could talk for ages about worship. There are some tapes at the back. What is worship? Cultivating a worshipping heart, which will tell you more about it. So we want the Bible to be taught faithfully, we want worship as a way of life, but we also, thirdly, want to minister to the poor and the oppressed. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. This is part of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God's rule and reign in our lives. It's about God's power and presence touching us right the way through our lives. And this verse and other verses tell us that the poor are the oppressed poor. They are the people who 
have been messed up because of the influence of Satan's kingdom, because of the kingdom of darkness. And our job is to receive the Holy Spirit, not so that we have you know, nice meetings and feel warm and fuzzy after the worship, but so that we are equipped to go and set the captives free. That's the job that Jesus has given us. That oppression, that uh, ministering to the poor is seen primarily in us wanting to reach out to those who don't know Jesus personally. But it's also seen in reaching out to people with material poverty, with bondages and addictions, people who are uh, the victims of natural disasters, all sorts of different things. All those things have Satan's fingerprints all over them. It's expressing the compassion of Jesus to those who are around us in whatever state we may find them. And uh, this bit's unrehearsed, but John is just about to come out here. John, come and uh, grab a microphone, because John's in charge of a number of the, the different things that we do. I think there's a microphone around here somewhere. Uh, John, just tell us about the shopping trolley at the back and what happens to it each week. Okay, there is a shopping trolley at the back. And... Uh, <laughs> It's got some signs on it that says, share your shopping. And um, what we encourage you to do is if you, if you go shopping during the week, which I assume that most of you do, uh, when you go shopping, just to be aware. Um, and really, the best thing to do is to pray and, and, and ask God, you know, what extra things could you buy um, that you could come on Sunday morning and, and put in the, in the trolley? Um, and we ask you that they are, what's the phrase? Things that don't, won't go off. Non-perishable. Non That's the one. Non-perishable. <laughs> you can see this wasn't rehearsed. <laughs> Non-perishable items. Um, and what we do is, um, each Sunday, um, we take them up to the office, um, and uh, we also go to the cash and carry every now and then and buy a whole lot of stuff. And then when people, um, we know there are people in need, sometimes people come to the office. We had a guy come to the office last week who was really struggling financially and a friend of his had told us about church because they'd been helped by us in the past. So we get visitors to the office. We also get people ringing up saying there are people in the church who need, need food or need finances or there's people outside that we know that, that need things. Then we put a, a food box together um, and we can take it around to them and, and we can just bless them by, by giving them some food, some practical help and we also give them some little vouchers so they can get fresh food as well. Great, thank you very much. That's just one of many things that we can do, one practical way that we can help. Uh, so, you know, even if you don't have time to give a lot to that area, we can easily help in that way. If you want to know more about uh, ministering to the poor, then have a word with John, and uh, he'd love to tell you more about it. We believe that the work in this area needs to be uh, a mixture of social action and spiritual action the gospel, the good news about Jesus. It's not either spiritual or material. We believe that both go together. In fact, uh, if you look at this verse, the, uh, the w word that Jesus used here for preaching the good news to the poor uh, is the word that we use for evangelism. It's the good news that Jesus has the answer to every situation and gives us practical assistance in every area of our lives whether that's spiritual, emotional, mental, social, financial, physical, and whatever areas I've missed out. But we need to be people who are willing to reach out to show our communities how relevant Jesus is today. Most people think the church is totally irrelevant. 
And uh, we know otherwise, don't we? And so we need to reach out and show people how relevant Jesus is. So we want to have the Bible taught faithfully. We want to have worship as a way of life. We want to minister to the poor and the oppressed. And the fourth thing is that we are made for mission. Some of you have just arrived in Oxford. Uh, It may be to work, it may be to study, it may just be to party, uh, whatever reason you've come here for. But none of those are the main reason that you're here. Jesus has brought you here. You're not here by accident. This is all part of God's plan. And he has brought you here with a specific purpose in mind. That purpose is to reach out to those who don't know Jesus yet. That's why you're here in Oxford or the Oxford area. And we know that we have the most incredible news for everybody. And we need to be able to share that. The danger that every single one of us faces, whatever church you go to, whatever church you end up being part of, is that we enjoy the blessing, but then we keep it to ourselves. And I am determined that as a church community that we continue to remain outward focused. In fact, that we become even more outward focused than we are at the moment. I heard a story this week that illustrates this. Nantucket Island is near Boston in the States, and uh, many years back, uh, storms were claiming the lives of people at sea. And so a group of volunteers set up the Massachusetts Humane Society, uh, which was an early life-saving group. And they built what they called huts of refuge along the shore. And each hut was equipped with a boat and other life-saving equipment. They had people on constant vigil looking out to sea, especially when it was stormy, to see if there were any boats or ships in trouble, to see if there was anyone whose life was in danger. These people were all volunteers who would risk everything to go out to rescue those who are in danger at sea. Their motto, you'll like this, it was, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. Probably not the best recruiting slogan, (laughs) but it shows how seriously they took it. And they saved the lives of many people. But over time, the US Coast Guards noticed what they were doing and started doing it as well. So you had these two groups doing it together. And then a little while later, the volunteers said, let the professionals do it. They're better trained, they're paid to do it, we don't need to do it anymore. And so the volunteers stopped saving lives. But they didn't disband. They enjoyed meeting together, they enjoyed the relationships and the camaraderie that they built up, and so they decided that they would continue to meet socially. And apparently even today they still meet from time to time, and they have dinners, and they give out awards for things like community service and so on, but they've given up life-saving. Every church faces the same challenge of withdrawing from the life-saving business and just becoming a social club. And we mustn't let that happen. And so I want to challenge you today to renew your commitment to being in the life-saving business. If you know Jesus, then I challenge you to make a commitment to doing that afresh today. And you may think, well, I'm not, I'm not equipped, I'm not qualified. Where does the Bible say that? Or did an angel appear to you to tell you you are not qualified to be in the life-saving business? Or maybe God caused the stars to get rearranged to spell out, you are not qualified for evangelism. Well, if none of that's happened, I think we can guess 
that actually we are qualified. The Bible tells us that every single one of us is qualified. And the reason that, one of the reasons that I love the Contagious Christian course is because it shows us how we are already gifted for the life-saving business. It's not about learning a whole load of uh, skills and extra things, although it's good to do that. But it shows us how every single one of us is already gifted by God to do this. And when I first did the course, I realized that uh, I'm a storyteller. That's the way that God uses me in evangelism. I'm not a confrontational kind of guy, except when I have the microphone. Uh, I'm not good at arguing things with people, although I'll take you on any day. Uh, I'm <clears throat> there are all sorts of different ways. Some of you are much better at debating. Some of you are much better at helping people practically. Some of you are inviters. That's the way that God has shaped you. You find it really easy to bring people along to things. Each one of us is already gifted. So come along to the Contagious Christian course and see how you can use that gifting that God has already given you. If we ignore being in the life-saving business, we are ignoring the main purpose of our life. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. It says, Christ died for sins. That's all the stuff we've done wrong. Once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Jesus died so that we can have eternal life and not face eternal death. Being cut off from God from eternity. Being cut off from everything that is good. Facing hell. Acts 1.8, it says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, we're called to reach out locally, nationally and internationally. We want every social and ethnic group to hear about Jesus and have a chance to respond. And uh, so there are all sorts of different ways that as a church we reach out locally. Well, we also are involved in church planting. This church has planted or been involved in planting eight different churches in the last ten and a half years. Some of them relatively locally, like uh, Salisbury and Milton Keynes. Some a bit further afield, like uh, Auckland, New Zealand. We believe we need new churches because if everybody in the population tried to go to church, they couldn't. Only 16% of the population could get into all the church buildings. New Christians generally find it easier to join new churches. New churches tend to grow more quickly and new churches tend to attract groups that older churches are not, group, uh, are not reaching out to. So there are all sorts of reasons why we need to be involved in church planting and God has already put that on the hearts of some of you. Now, we also do international stuff. Brenton and Jemima are going to come up now and uh, tell us about a trip that they've just been on to Kosovo. Uh, I'm going in a few weeks' time to Tajikistan with Jez. And, uh, but uh, tell us about what happened in Kosovo. Um, just over a week ago, a group of about 30 people descended on a town in Kosovo called Jakova. And um, the group was made up of about 20 South Africans and 10 um, people from England, uh, six of us from this church. Uh, for those of you unfamiliar with um, the history of, of that place, uh, when Yugoslavia, after it came out from under communist um, rule, basically began to disintegrate. It's made up of a, a number of provinces containing different ethnic groups. And uh, what this meant for Kosovo and Jakova, where we were, was that about four years ago, um, Serbian soldiers descended on their town and their village and basically went door to door um, 
uh, knocking on doors, uh, asking people to let them in, and then shooting them in, or um, and doing a lot of other very bad, bad things to the people who live there. So there are a lot of broken people. So the war ended three years ago, and the place is still a very um, disintegrated and uh, disturbed place. There are a lot of holes in the roads where the, the mines have been detonated so that they can uh, carry on living there. The electricity goes off every four hours or something. So it's pretty crazy. Anyway, the idea was that uh, we'd come and do a worship conference there uh, with an emphasis on reconciliation. In South Africa, there was a group of people who'd um, managed, despite the South Africa's appalling history, to be reconciled uh, to each other, black people and white people. And they were going to come and share their stories and reach out. And uh, so we went there to worship and uh, to spend some time with the Christians there. Just um, lastly, in 89 was the first time any Christians had come to that area in the last few hundred years. So the church is very young. And uh, can you imagine that? That's uh, what's 14 years ago. So it's quite hard to believe. That it's a nominal Muslim country, so people are very open to the Lord. What, what stood out for you, Jemima, during your week there? Um, it, I think for me what stood out was that... Um, here in England, we say that um, God is the God of all comfort, and we, you know, we pray for each other, and God comforts us. But there, um, you know, we have to say God's the God of all comfort, but we're seeing people that um, they're widows, and they've, they've seen their husbands and their children murdered in front of them. And, and you think, well, God, are you really real? Can you, can you heal their pain? Can you comfort them? And he does, and he comes, and it was so exciting. And we were only there for a week, so we um, basically were just encouraging the missionaries and the Christians but it was just so exciting for me to see how real and how amazing God is in the midst of such pain and such horrible things. He comes and he can heal and he can change things. So it's really exciting. Thank you very much. What was the scariest part of the trip? It was going swimming in a, in a dam on the Sunday. I think that was the scariest part because not all of Kosovo is demined. And we, you can have fun on missions. <laughs> that worked out for me. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Can I say one, one last thing? Yeah. Well, just to echo what Jemima said, what really struck me was the intensity of their joy, the joy of the people there who knew God and uh, just the peace uh, that's on them. And what struck me was that God works. He, he works. God is real. And what amazed me was that he's real to meet us here in Oxford, but really um, big enough to cope with everything that comes in life. And they really have faced some horrible things. And just worship times are unbelievable. They were just so full of the Lord and ready to meet with him. Anyway. Great. Thank, Thank you. you. <clears throat> so we want the Bible taught faithfully. We want worship as a way of life. We want to minister to the poor and the oppressed. And we want to remember that we're made for mission. Fifth thing is that uh, we are to heal the sick. Mark 16, verse 17. Jesus said, This is what uh, any normal Christian will do. These signs will accompany those who believe. That's how the early church grew. Uh, they healed the sick, they told people about Jesus, and uh, when people started to uh, follow, they planted churches. Matthew 10, verse 7, Jesus said, Preach this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. God's rule and reign, God's power and presence are here. And then you show that it's not just empty words because you heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, and drive out demons. Freely you've received freely give. And so the calling for each one of us is to be word workers like Jesus. To speak the words and to do the works. 
Now, there's a book at the back called Power Healing, uh, which is by John Wimber, who founded the Vineyard Movement. In fact, I think we've got it on a special offer at the moment, which is very convenient. You get power evangelism and power healing, and I think we've put it there at uh, six pounds for both of them, which is, uh, is very good indeed. The sixth thing we're called to do is to build community. In Acts 2.42, it tells us what the early church was like, and it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. And one of the ways they did fellowship was that they broke bread in their homes. They just hung out together. They had meals together. And uh, the main place for us of building relationship, of fellowship, is in our key groups. Most of them meet in homes. Uh, Some of them meet in colleges or in pubs, wherever. The focus of our key groups is to worship and build relationship with God, to build relationship with each other, and to minister to, to each other as well. They're the primary place of pastoral care, of healing, personal growth, making friends, and so on. They're, really, they are the key thing. It's where you lock into Jesus, and it's where you unlock your future. Those of you who have been in Oxford any length of time will know that Oxford is one of the most fiery places in the world for spiritual warfare. You've, you will have experienced that if you've been here for a while. And uh, I believe that one of the reasons why the temperature is so high is because Oxford is a key place in God's plan for revival coming to this country and also spreading out to many other countries. But the bottom line is you need to watch yourself here. Satan will do everything that he can to try to get you to withdraw from other people, to be out of fellowship to lose relationship, because he knows that if he can get you to do that, he can pick you off, and he can start to destroy you. Imagine a stick that's been in the fire. It's right in the center of the fire. It's burning red hot. You pull it out of the fire, and it's still red hot. In fact, it's already started to cool down. The second you pull it away from the center, it starts to cool down, and it ends up just smoking and then going cold altogether. Those of you who are part of this church, if you have withdrawn from a key group, you have begun that process. You've started to cool down. You're already several steps down the pathway to losing your spiritual heat, to losing relationship with other people. And in fact, you are in a position of great danger. Satan is waiting there to pick you off. And uh, I want you to be sure I am not overstating the danger. I've seen this happen so many times. I've seen people who have been really on fire for God, who maybe because they were offended or because of all sorts of other reasons, they started to withdraw, and before they knew it, they'd lost that fire, and they'd fallen out of relationship, and Satan started to get inroads into their life. And there are all sorts of reasons that why we pull back, all sorts of good excuses that we have. It may be that we just got married, and so we think that somehow that means we can't get to a key group. Uh, The smart thing is to take your husband or wife with you. Some people pull back when they have children. Uh, Some people still have children, and so they, they find that life is busy. I have four little boys, I know what it's like. Some people are busy at work, and they think, well, I'm just going through a busy period, and then once I've got over this, then, you know, I'll, I'll get back into Uh, the things that God wants me to do. Don't fool yourself. 
Don't wait for the slow day to come. It won't. Life will always be busy. You will always have umpteen things pulling at you. It's simply a matter of what you make a priority. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And I felt God really impressed that on me this week, that some of you are actually in, in serious danger. You need to re-engage with relationship. You need to re-engage in key groups. You need to find strong, accountable, healthy relationships within the church so that you can grow and be strong. They provide support for you. They, they also provide a spiritual covering for you. So we want to make sure that we build community. We also, seventhly, want to train people. We want to make disciples. We want to grow up before we grow old. In Ephesians 4.11 it says, uh, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You notice from that verse, it tells us a number of things. Firstly, leaders lead and everybody ministers. Some of you may have come from churches where the people who were in leadership in the church did all the ministry. Uh, we don't believe that's a biblical model. We might be wrong, but the way we do it here is that the leaders lead and everybody ministers. And so that's...